Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with a long time, how do I say, a person who I've taken guidance from in looking at the problems of the world, Max Lawson from Oxfam. He uh, has spoken to our Commission on Global Economic Transformation, helped us frame agendas, dig deeper, and see some of the things that, particularly in relationship between the Global North and Global South, should be attended to if we are striving to achieve a common good. Max today is uh, here to talk about an extraordinary and very, very vivid report that Oxfam has created called Inequality Kills. The unparalleled action needed to combat unprecedented equality in the wake of COVID-19. Max, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Rob. And just to say, I'm a huge fan of iNet and I love this podcast. So it's a real thrill uh, to get this opportunity to talk. Well, we're we're glad you're here. And I think there's uh, chilling and thrilling embodied in your report that we can go into today. but uh, in essence, I, what I would say just as a prelude is there's a lot of awareness that you impart. Uh, Jayati Ghosh, who's from our Commission on Global Economic Transformation and a former podcast participant and probably will be again soon. Uh, and uh, Abigail Disney, who's made a podcast with me and is uh, part of the Patriotic Millionaires Group wrote the prefaces to this report. They're two people I really respect and admire. But you have a report which I, I think does a lot of unmasking that COVID brought to us. But the data on concentration of wealth, the acceleration of concentration of wealth, questions about governance, questions about broad-based prosperity, life and death, so many vivid chapters in this report of about 60 pages. I really, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. But tell me, I mean, when, when one reads this, it's very, very, if you will, chilling, haunting. But where did the inspiration come from? Where did you and your colleagues get to a place where you say, we've got to paint this portrait, we've got to sound the alarm? Well, I think there's, uh, <clears throat> there's two things there, but I think, um, the, the, the first thing is, you know, the report, uh, we've done a report around this time, about the time of the Davos meeting where the billionaires come together for some years and kind of scoping and looking at the the, the kind of evolution in, in, in inequality, and particularly the wealth of the very, very richest, you know, the 2,000, 2,500 billionaires worldwide. And so we're kind of doing that anyway and, and, and coming to that and reviewing the numbers. Um and I, I mean, I'm, I see myself as quite a hardened inequality uh, uh, person. I've been watching these things for some time, and even I was completely shocked by the the, the absolute leap in billionaire wealth that we've seen during COVID, and the fact that that just hasn't 
really been talked about that much. Partly, I think, because the Davos meetings themselves have been very subdued. You know, they've just been online. There hasn't been the kind of scrutiny uh, that we've seen in, in, in years before. So I think we really wanted to draw attention to the fact that when you look at the graph, I mean, billionaire wealth has been climbing with uh, the odd dip climbing consistently since the early 2000s. But then when you get to the last two years of COVID-19, it actually looks and kind of mimics the graph for the Omicron variant. You know, I mean, it kind of <laughs> it goes through just exponential. Um, so that's that's a that's a really I think there's something everyone should be talking about. Everyone should be worried about. And at the moment, they're not. Um, but then I think the other key message of the report, which is comes in the title, Inequality Kills, is again, some ways a reflection on COVID because I think we saw from the beginning the way that COVID-19 across the world in the richest countries, in, in, in the poorest countries where their Oxfam works, kind of, it was like an X-ray, if you like. It kind of showed up these fractures and these inequalities, which I know you've talked before on the podcast about many of us have discussed um, but really that what brought it across uh, was this sense that inequality is not just about having less money or not being able to buy that nice car or you know but when this when the chips are down it means you're more likely to die you know and, and inequality is killing people and I was incredibly struck by the there was a big editorial in The Economist um, a few months back which had looked at some studies showing that uh, there's a greater correlation between the level of inequality in the country where you live and your chances of dying from COVID-19 than there is even with old age. So, you know, everyone's view is that, you know, the most dangerous thing for COVID-19 is how old you are. But in reality, uh, it's actually uh, much, much scarier if you live in an unequal in, in country. And the reason for that is the lack of access to health services, lack of access to support. It's just a very fragile uh, environment when COVID hit which makes it much, much more of a death sentence. And so we really wanted to draw attention to that link, not just between, you know, the economic and social impacts of inequality, which of course are profound, but also this this more deadly impact um, and try and put a number on that. So we we put together, you know, looking at, at data around healthcare, around, um, uh, you know, climate change, deaths from extreme weather events, looking at gender-based violence, all the different kind of intersections of inequality. And, we, we think a very conservative estimate that uh, inequality is killing someone every four seconds. Uh, and that that's a pretty dramatic fact and something we hadn't tried to do before. And we had it, we had some experts look at it from outside Oxfam, you know, are we being conservative? Are we, I think we were very, very cautious. I think the, the real figure is significantly higher. So yeah, those are, I think, yeah, so, so it's, it's billionaire bonanza. I mean, absolutely insane. But it is also this sense that COVID shows us what really matters and that inequality is killing people. I think, uh, I mean, there are a bunch of charts early on where you, which you might call, not only talk qualitatively, but you show the, the extreme to degrees to which things have gone in the period during COVID about how the 10 richest people uh, have doubled their income since COVID started, but 98% of people have lower net worth as a result of the distress and displacement associated with COVID. That, that's an economic measure, that's not a health measure. Uh, you talk about uh, how 250 men have more wealth than all, basically, of the women in the global south. 
uh, you have all kinds of different things on, uh, uh, what was it, I remember the top 1% has gained 20 times the wealth that the bottom 50% of humanity, I mean, th these are just hard blasting, which you might call vivid facts, they're not just facts about uh, how out balance and how extreme everything has become. Uh, there's a phrase you use to explain it to me and to the to the audience, the billionaire variant. What is, what is that referring to? Well, I mean, that was my idea, actually. It's just this, you know, because <laughs> we've been, I've been working a lot on the, um, on, uh, we have a kind of parallel campaign fighting more for vaccine equity and fighting against um, the kind of monopolies of the big pharmaceuticals. And so we're always constantly closely observing the, the evolution of COVID-19. And as we were writing the report, you know, reports of Omicron were coming through and we're just seeing these really scary graphs of kind of exponential growth. And then we they did the billionaire graph and it, it looked remarkably similar. So we're thinking like, you know, this, is this is the biggest problem we have here a billionaire variant? And I think that, I mean, I was trying to... Uh, 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 I, was, I was really, really struck. Um, when was it? I think last summer, wasn't it? When Jeff Bezos launched his, his rocket into space. And um, I was discussing with colleagues about, you know, um, could this be perhaps the most iconic inequality moment in history? You know, before now we had kind of Marie Antoinette and let them eat cake. But to have a global pandemic with, you know, by some estimates, nearly 20 million people dying and untold destitution. You know, if I, I just recently returned from living in Kenya for, for some years and was there at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, the, the destitution that people were forced into by these lockdowns, by the economic impact, which continues. So this is going on. And at the same time, we have a... a, a a billionaire in a cowboy hat, like something out of Dr. Strangelove. Uh, he has, I mean, let's face it, his, his rocket is remarkably phallic in, in its presentation. You know, like, uh, you don't have to be Freud to, to think that something's going on there. And then, and, and, and then when he returns to Earth, he gives a press conference where he thanks the workers of Amazon for working so hard that he's got the money to go into space. And as our numbers say in the report, you know, just the increase in his wealth just the increase in his wealth. We're not talking about taking all of his wealth. He'd be as rich as he was before COVID began. So we just, you know, claw back that 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 increase would be enough to vaccinate the entire world. You know, so it's we reckon it's about $27 billion to pay for enough vaccines for for everyone who needs one. Um, uh, so it, it, that juxtaposition, I think, I, I personally think probably trumps Marie Antoinette. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty incredible. So it's quite hard to to exaggerate the scale of inequality and the impact that has and 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 it is with these kind of cut through facts that we really try and get to the public imagination so they can really visualize the the juxtaposition yeah well joe biden's the president now so saying something was trumped is it doesn't have the pun status that <laughs> that's it true it really doesn't yeah no, <laughs> not anymore yeah but i i think you know this is a fascinating phenomenon because you can talk about life and death if you had taken a windfall tax from the 10 richest men in the world of the gains they've gotten since the onset of COVID, you could vaccinate everybody. Okay, that right at straight straight away, a lot of people don't die. But in addition to that, perhaps a lot of variants don't form. 
perhaps a lot of macroeconomies don't require such broad-based and long assistance and growth of the debt-to-GDP ratio. Perhaps it would have saved a tremendous amount of money for rebuilding in infrastructure, hospitals, education systems, and climate change all over the world. But instead, as you say, we watched a cowboy movie. Uh, I guess the best supporting actor was Richard Branson for his own version. But, yeah, uh, yeah, the lesser but, known yeah. kind of B actor. Yeah, but it but it 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 does seem like, as you say, uh, it it makes Marina Antoinette seem kind of like small small play comparatively. It's so vivid. It is, and it, and it's it's um and it's not getting any better. And I think you know when when you look at the 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 the, the absolutely um, cast iron economic arguments made by the IMF and others that you know just a small investment in vaccinating the world would would reap these immense benefits economically. Uh, you know we and not just in poor countries, you know, because of the the fall off in trade and tourism and all those things, rich countries losing out substantially because poor countries are not vaccinated so you have to think why are they why are they not doing this and then you then you have to look at like um it is is you know for for who is this two-year period of covid um actually doing well for you know who's who's winning out of it you know and i think um i think politicians are very very nationally focused and i can understand that you know even boris johnson who i you know can't bear you know i can understand his primary job is to vaccinate people in Britain and make them safe, but to then block uh, the vaccination of developing countries and 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 defend the the profits of Pfizer or the profits of Moderna, you know, the, to see Joe Biden basically, you know, unable to overrule the interests of a small firm like Moderna and insist they share their publicly funded vaccine with the world, and 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 then you look at the fact that. Uh, during COVID-19, according to Forbes, uh, there have been 40 new vaccine billionaires created, either from PPE or from, including the, the head of Moderna. Um, and, you know, we, that's that's our modern world. We can't vaccinate billions of people, but we can create vaccine billionaires, you know. So it's kind of, it's it's pretty twisted and quite hard to, to oversell as a, as, a, as a failed situation. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess where we're we're kind of digging into here are what you might call the ramifications of this failed system. And as we explore this, we I, I think the vividness of political economy, how public common good decisions are made, is is revealed. In this instance, it was made to perhaps inspire, but perhaps uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry to rise to the challenge, except once they had risen to the challenge, which lots of, lots of public subsidies, the power of the industries thwarted the dissemination that would have helped humankind orders of magnitude more. The question I'm getting at, though, is what is the process that's underneath this political economy? What kind of, what you might call moral deadness or what kind of fearful dependency on money do politicians have that requires them to, or, or, or I want to say requires, that's, that's too strong, but leads to them acting in this 
unmindful way. I think it's really interesting, particularly when you look at the the parallel uh, we often draw with uh, with HIV AIDS, where you saw you know a Republican president George Bush overrule the interests of the pharmaceuticals, insist on generic production of cheap HIV AIDS drugs just twenty years ago. So you're thinking like, if he could do that then. Um, What's changed now? And often, you know, the, the optimists among us like to think that, you know, we passed peak neoliberalism and we're in this period of kind of, uh, what's it, Gramsci called it like a kind of morbid phase where we don't really know what's going on, but at least we've kind of peaked that, passed that peak ideology. But I, I, I'm increasingly thinking that might not be the case because it, it's true uh, if you look at the lobbying power of someone like Pfizer in um, in, in America is enormous, but the lobbying power of Moderna is pretty weak. You know, so it, I don't think it's a simple case of, uh, you know, they've bought politicians. I think that that has a big part to play. And then equally, if you look at the Pfizer vaccine is produced with a German company called BioNTech and, and in Germany and Europe, it's known as the BioNTech vaccine. And again, they're a small startup. You know, they got some government money. Uh, it's not the case that they, they, they've got enormous links to politicians and a huge lobbying power. So it really, I think your your phrase, like the deadness of the political imagination, the idea that you would would even question, you know, the the, the intellectual property of these 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 firms, I think it is almost worse than it was twenty years ago. It's the it's like kind of, and that that I found that really quite shocking because if you can't do it now, you know if not now when you know in the midst of a global pandemic when the economic arguments are unassailable, when the arguments from self interest are unassailable, then when are you going to do it? You know, so um, I, I I that does worry me uh, deeply. I'll be honest. Yeah, and I, I think your point of just. Um separating between just the raw power of money and what you might call the deadness of mind from ideological habits that reinforce the power of money is very important. We've had an episode in the United States that some of the uh, members of the House, like uh, AOC and others, have reacted to, which was when leading politicians, including the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, started defending the right of people in the legislature to trade in stocks while they're making legislation about those stocks. And when you're talking about what I'll call a call, an awakening and a rebalancing uh, that I had hoped the pandemic would have triggered, the idea that politicians don't perceive a conflict between them being legislation makers on behalf of the public good and them filling their own pocket by what you might call the way they tweak the policies and the legislation is is quite haunting. And uh, it is. We've had, it number, is. we've had a number of studies that come out of INET. A scholar named Tulum has written about how, in, in essence, the blind trusts of House and Senator uh, often outperform people like George Soros and Warren Buffett. So there's something going on there. Uh, it's a, what's the old uh, Buffalo Springfield song? Uh, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. I think people think it's getting pretty clear. That I think it's, it's, it's getting pretty clear. But I do think that kind of 
marriage you know i was listening to uh, adam twos talking about this the other day uh, about their kind of relationship you know is neoliberalism dying or is it just really pliable as an ideology you know if you look at one other big aspect of our report and i think something that isn't really talked about enough is you know the relationship between quantitative easing and and the, the huge injection of money uh, from the fed from all the central banks that we saw after the financial crisis for the first time and now uh, a, you know, dwarfed by the interventions during COVID nineteen, and and that is the single biggest reason that billionaires have got so rich in the last two years. You know, and and particularly the ones at the top. Um, and you've got this actual inequality between billionaires. So if you've got a hundred billion, you're doing a lot better in the last two years than if you've only got a billion. You know, pocket change. But you, you you've got this situation where basically you've had this immense injection of money, which is driving up asset prices and then as a result you know uh, an incredible spike in billionaire wealth which is you know it's, it's not like these these billionaires were working twice as hard in the last two years it's not like they you know twice as clever you know it's a kind of structural impact of QE and I, I'm not against QE I think it was probably in some ways the best thing to do but the case we try and make in, in the report is there's an absolutely unassailable case for using the tax system to kind of claw that money back in some way, you know, because if you've got this side effect of a, a massive growth in, 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 in wealth at the very top, then, you know, we need extraordinary moves to, to claw that back, put it into the public purse and use it for things that, that, that would make a difference worldwide. So, uh, but yeah, I was really struck by that. And I'm not, I don't think enough economists are talking about it. And I, and I don't think enough people are reflecting on in a relationship between this quite, um, well, it's now quite standard monetary policy, but it's still seen as fairly heterodox and not very neoliberal. Uh, still, uh, Adam Tooze's point, that if you if you see neoliberalism as effectively a class project, uh, then the last 10 years, the, the, the people at the very top have done even better than they did before the financial crisis. So it's quite a pliable ideology. And I would have said, I completely agree, all the way through is this sense that... Um, yeah, the absolute uh, kind of the almost incredulity that you would suggest that there might be a difference of interest between the private sector and the political class. It's not really, um, and we we I mean we have this you know within the global health uh, uh, situation, you have a situation where Covax, which is the system designed to try and vaccinate the world. You know, they're public-private partnerships. You know, the pharmaceutical firms sit on the board of these global health uh, endeavours. They're not like the UN. They don't just have member states. You know, they're basically... Industry has a voice at the top table about the prices that are paid for the drugs that industry is producing. You know, and that's just standard in the global health world now. And um, a little wonder that, you know, these, these things like COVAX are paying through the nose for vaccines when they could be... Uh, you know, shouting loudly about the, the need for pharmaceutical firms to lower their prices. So there's a kind of structural closeness, which is just seen as positive, uh, which is really hard to get around. Yes. Coming back for just a second to the macro framework. Um, I remember after Paul Volcker had left and Alan Greenspan had taken over at the Fed, uh, the essentially easy money from the Fed to support the stock market was a bit shocking. There, there was a sense in which, what's going on? But as time evolved, 
what we started to see was what you might call the macro policy mix a fiscal stimulus, something that rebuilt education systems, infrastructure, or whatever, could contribute to productivity, but it contained within it a contingent liability that wealthy people feared. Easy monetary policy, as you've cited, inflated the bubble and increased their wealth. So the favoring of monetary ease and QE with fiscal austerity and periodic threats to cut things like social security, but not much attention to, say, if you look at the United States on a comparative basis, our healthcare costs per capita are the highest in the OECD and we're rated 38th in the quality of healthcare. If you were a fiscal hawk, you should have gone after normalizing it, not related to a fantasy, but related to what other OECD countries did for their health system. And you would have created fiscal austerity at, how would I say, orders of magnitude that really do matter in the long term. You have all kinds of things related to war and actually the healthcare costs for PTSD and so forth which uh, Linda Bilnes at Harvard has mentioned, you know, is like $30 trillion over 30 years for all the people who came back from Iraq. So there are all kinds of things accruing within the power structure that are big fiscal burdens, but we're not doing the baseline things that create broad-based prosperity. And where I'm, where I'm most concerned about that is not just from what you might call static material, but when it feeds despair, Angus Deaton and other and, and Case have created the notion, the diseases of despair. But it, when it feeds despair, it makes an authoritarian alternative, a la Donald Trump, who comes out and says, the system is rigged and I'm going to fix it. People lurch to that because they feel so abandoned and so terrified. So I, I think this, what you might call... Um, the system is getting so out of balance, your, your report is extraordinary in illuminating almost the ridiculousness of it. And now we're talking about a competition for world leadership between the United States, which has been the leader since World War II, and China. Kishore Mahubani is writing a new book, 21st Century Asia, and he's got chapters in about, is America a democracy or a plutocracy? Why would you want to emulate these results? Why would anybody who studies Eastern philosophy, which has a more, whether Indian or Taoist, has a more awareness, I guess, of public goods, common goods built into it, why would you adhere to the system from the West, the Cartesian Enlightenment notions, when you can, first of all, you can cite Adam Smith in contradiction to the way we're behaving, but secondly, the Eastern philosophy is telling you goodness comes from a different place. And we're, what are we going to do? Prevail with our military budget? There's, there has to be a healing here. There has to be a change in direction to inspire people to integrate within this system rather than choose an alternative. <coughs> yeah, I think, I mean, and if you just look just at the basics uh, in the last year or so, um, you know, you had uh, President Biden having his kind of 
originally 3.5 trillion package, which for the first time in, you know, three or four decades involved a a substantial increase in taxation on the richest. You know, it would, you know, it would have, it wasn't enormous, but it was, you know, as a kind of bottoming out, you know, it was really quite an interesting proposition. And of course, that comes off the back of, of the amazing work by Elizabeth Warren and others, you know, just the general mood music shifting towards the need to to tax the richest more, and that now run into the sand. Contrast that with, with China, where, you know, for, for various reasons, and it's, you know, uh, opinions differ as always with China watching, but it's absolutely the case that Xi Jinping is out to, you know, defenestrate lots of billionaires. He's out to uh, talk about inequality and kind of, try and because uh, I mean they, they have their own interests but actually taking steps to to reduce the wealth of the super rich so not only are we seeing a kind of plutocracy in the US if you're looking about kind of action taken to reduce inequality and following through on it then there's more delivery uh, in China at the moment than there is in in the US um, despite all the mood music so I, I agree it's um but I suppose what fascinates me Robin and, and 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 I'd love to get your view on this is kind of you know the US has been here before you know I've I, I got a great student of US history and the the, the insane plutocracy uh, that obtained uh, in the early 20th century and the capture of politics and the media and yet you know it, it it was improved and it did turn around and, and, you know, kind of democracy was regained. So I think we will take heart from that story, but also aware that it's it's somehow historically unique. Um, and yeah, I just as an America watcher, I just think, how do how do we get back from this insane capture uh, of, 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 of the rich? And I would say, you know, as an Oxfam person, you know, this is we always have a global try and take a global perspective. You know, personally, I've spent most of my career outside the UK and Africa, but I was working very closely with Latin American colleagues. And you see this kind of uh, upsurge in, in, in progressivism again in, 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 in Latin America with the Chilean election, now Brazil. So, I mean, I, I do find some hope and I do think there's some real interest in, 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 in progress. But this sense in, in Latin America, again, which is that it's, it's the capture of wealth and power at the very, very top. Um, that has never really been resolved. And unless they break that stranglehold, um, you know, you might get the odd progressive government that introduces a few positive measures, like we saw with Lula the first time around. And you can even see the Gini coefficient with, with you know, reduce, which we did for, for, you know, a good decade. But you haven't really tackled that kind of core problem uh, of concentration of power and wealth. And until you do, uh, you know, it's never going to be more than a temporary reprieve. So it's kind of, how do we do it? How do we how do we bring America back to its roots? You know. And uh, and if my assertion is that if we don't bring it back to its roots, the old famous Barry White song, you've got to practice what you preach. If we don't demonstrate that, we should not be surprised if people abandoned which you might call following our leadership or emulating the structure of our society. And I don't know, when I look in your report, I see uh, some very vivid things when you're moving towards what you might call after the evidence, the violence towards people of color, violence towards women, violence towards the global South, deaths, non-participation in healthcare, 
And I see a handful of things that are underscored here. I'll just read them off. Only systemic solutions will do to combat economic violence at its root and lay the foundations for a more equal world. One, claw back extreme wealth into the real economy to tackle inequality. Two, redirect the wealth to save lives and invest in our future. Three, change rules and shift power in the economy and society. These all seem like, I made a piece on a podcast yesterday with Ajay Chibra from, uh, he's got a new book out that's extraordinary with Salman Son. Uh, it's called uh, Unshackling India. And he basically had worked as the evaluation minister of the Indian government in 2013, 2014. He's been at the UN, UNDP, and World Bank in his career. And looking as someone who, which Michael had the responsibility to design and implement the state, he sounded very much like the things I've just quoted from your report. And he's talking about, obviously, an enormous project in the context of climate change rebuilding India. And one of the things I wanted to add, I think there now, the urgency and timetable on climate change and reducing carbon emissions is interfered with by the resistance to transformation that comes from the people at the bottom who fear change because they're used to seeing the winners win and the losers devastated. So if you're in West Virginia and they say you're going to stop burning coal, are you going to get adjustment assistance? The old adage in free trade theory, we can make everybody better off and nobody worse off, involves significant strategies and transfer payments to fulfill them so that the system evolves in a way that does make everybody better off. In this frightened environment that your report brings about, how many people are going to, what you might call, express faith and join the transition when they think they're going to get flushed down the toilet? Oh, I think that's true. I think it's an ongoing issue um, with, with the left behind, and it links back to your point about deaths of despair. But I think, I mean, the main point we make in the report about climate change is, is also looking at it from, I mean, the same kind of perspective of, of, of individuals rather than, than countries, because the, you know, the climate debate is dominated by the kind of, is China the bigger emitter compared to the US? And what about India? As if they kind of operate as, uh, as distinct um, uh, entities. And of course, that's relevant to climate negotiations. But the point we want to make in the report is, you know, um, the emissions, uh, we've got an amazing statistic, which is that the average Ghanaian in their lifetime emits less carbon than the average US refrigerator. You know, so basically, you've got um, this incredible disparity of, of, of emissions, but also within rich countries, because um, you know, the emissions of, of, of the very, very rich are astronomical. Um, and apparently it makes a massive difference whether you own a yacht or not, because yachts are apparently, they, I don't own a yacht myself. Maybe, maybe you do, Rob, but you don't strike me as a sailing type. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, the, the I, I think the kinds of yachts, these these billionaires, I mean, Jeff Bezos has just had a, one built in Amsterdam or in, in, in the Netherlands, and they actually had to dismantle a historical bridge because it's so big like they couldn't get it from the shipyard wow. so these these guys are emitting we calculate well we don't calculate we use some research that some guys did in the u.s but um the kind of uh 
they look at 20 of the world's richest people and they look at their consumption, you know, kind of the amount they travel, whether they have a yacht, how many houses they have. Um, Bill Gates has 23 houses. How can, who needs 23 houses? But anyway, so they, they, they emit about 8,000 times more carbon than the average citizen. And and that's true of the, the Chinese elite. It's true of the African elite. So it's not just, you know, American billionaires. So these rich people are um, not only consuming immense amounts of carbon, that there's no, if you look at the, the projections, um, if, if people implement what they agreed at the Paris Accords, then you will see in rich countries um, the emissions of the what I call the middle classes will begin to reduce you know so that and that's that's a good thing I mean we're still a long way from it happening but you know the average citizen will see um, their contribution to climate change manifest as, as energy transitions um, but the rich are set to increase their emissions over the next 10 years so I think again it's this kind of uh, uh, that taking that perspective and then you ask the kind of you ask yourself um, where is their money invested? You know, it's not just, um, uh, you know, your, your working man who is in West Virginia who's worried about the future of coal. You know, a lot of these billionaires still have quite a lot of money invested in, in fossil fuels. You know, they're still making quite a lot of money from it. Um, and uh, some more than others. I mean, obviously, it's a mixed bag. But on balance, you know, the, the stock market is still quite heavily invested in, in a fossil fuel future and billionaires represent a significant you know proportion of, of stock so the, i think there is a, 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 a an intersection between a, this description of inequality and the desire to transition away from carbon and, and beat climate change that we need to talk about more because they're seen as two separate problems you know two separate crises and i think they're intimately linked yeah Yep. Well, I don't want to evade your question. Yes, I've, I've been a lifelong sailor. When I was a little boy, my mother and father had a boat in, in Michigan, and I am told I was duct tape in drawers so that they could sail while I napped and didn't fall out of the drawer. So you didn't fall <laughs> out. I see. Yeah, okay. so they, they didn't tape me body, but they taped the drawer so it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, no. Okay, but, uh, but I sailed quite a bit, and when I left the... Uh, financial industry i did build an 88 foot sailboat that was called shaman which i owned from 1997 to 2009 in large part to create expeditions to places like antarctica spitsbergen and take three generations meaning my parents who were big sailors and my children and bring everybody together and uh, but it was a sailboat it did have an auxiliary engine, but I don't think it was as big a polluter as... Uh, I think the, the carbon emissions were probably pretty low, you know? Um, so you, sh you shared that with FDR then, a love of sailing. Um, I, I think your yacht... <laughs> That your yacht, uh, compared to Jeff Bezos's, I think your emissions would. I don't think you have to worry, Robert. I think yeah. you're okay. Um, no, I would yeah. say there. I just didn't want to avoid your, you know, your exploration. <laughs> it's I, fair enough. I, fair I'm enough. not. Uh, I, I'm. I'm. I enjoyed tremendously sailing and the ways in which, like when I would have friends who would have a traumatic episode. One lost a child. I put them on the boat. They have a daughter now who's almost a college age named sailor who was conceived on the boat so uh there there were some healing dimensions in that too that's why i called it shaman because it brought the oh yeah makes and sense, makes sense. And, uh, yeah. A, a guy in an art gallery in santa fe new mexico told me what a shaman was and i said that's what i want my boat to be 
But, yeah, uh, anyway, yeah, that's a healer. A a healer. But, uh, but I think these these questions, whether it's private airplanes, number of houses, yachts, are uh, what you might call inconsistent with climate change. I think the way in which uh, ESG type uh, marketing is done, and when do you practice what you preach as an investor? is an open question. I know people like Mark Carney, who I'm well acquainted with, uh, aspire to channel the energies of finance in the direction of climate change. But how we do that, as I think still a question, it's on the drawing board. Uh, but it, it's very it's very tricky. I mean, Peter Goodman, as you know, recently released a book called Davos Man, where he vividly, you bring the data of the contradictions in the pandemic, but he brings all kinds of experience of contradictions uh, in profiles, five or six billionaires, plus the founder of the World Economic Forum in that book. So I think this, uh, which you might call the awakening to these contradictions is proceeding quite vividly right now. I think I think so. I think um, I, I thought his book was was great. I love the podcast you did with him. I think the 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 just the kind of sense that everything has a win-win solution. He was so eloquent about that. This idea that, you know, every problem on the earth can be solved in a kind of win-win way. And I'm I'm not saying there aren't win-win solutions for some things, but I think a lot of the solutions uh, on earth, and not least of that inequality and climate change, involve, you know, uh, those with significant power uh, losing a little. You know, not losing a lot, but, you know, there needs to be some it's not just uh it is zero sum to a certain extent you know and i think no more so with with wealth and extreme wealth and 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 the power that, i mean my um my former boss winnie who was the, the ed of oxfam now at una she used to say you know uh, this isn't about you know um buying a yacht or buying a nicer car it's, it's about buying a judge you know it's about buying impunity from justice it's about buying a newspaper you know and 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 she's thinking of as much of Uganda as she is of the United States. You know, this is, you know, in Kenya where I've just been living, like the, the level of impunity and the idea that you know justice is just something uh, you, you just buy your way out of problems. You know, um, uh, so I I I think that the 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 link between extreme wealth and um, a corruption of of our democracy and and the way things that are. Done. And then the faith, as you say, the faith from ordinary people in that same democracy, the faith in government. You know, we, we campaign for increases in taxes in in Kenya or, or, or somewhere like that. And, and people don't want to campaign for increases in taxes because they don't believe that that money is going to be spent well. They don't trust the state to spend it well. Uh, so that that whole contract is, is eroded. And uh, so it's 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 not just that the the revenues that you're losing, but by seeing that impunity at the very top, you're eroding a whole kind of social fabric, um, which is, you know, devastating for progressive policies. I was once in a climate-related meeting that INET participated in just before the pandemic. And they were talking about how there is a great need for the, which you may call deployment of renewable resources, particularly wind and solar, in Africa. And a gentleman from Norway said, the irony is we can borrow to build solar panels in Norway for 100 basis points over 
the rate of inflation. One percent real interest rate is the. He said in Africa, it costs them almost nine percent over the rate of inflation or real interest rate. And he said we all are going to benefit if it's built in Africa much more than if it's built in Norway because it's dark a lot mm, mm. in Norway and it's the the, the impact in terms of energy for planet Earth, will be much greater in Africa. He said, but we can't get the creditors to believe that their money will actually go into making solar panels. They think it will go into a Geneva bank account from some government minister. How do we share the burden so that we all revive the planet? I, I, could, I was kind of shaken to hear that. And obviously, I'm not creating a moral... Um, which Michael denigration of African people, because this is the product of history and colonialism and all kinds of elements of corruption, not some deficient moral fiber in these countries. But, but, but wrestling with these problems, wrestling with the, which Michael, here's an earnest guy in a credit market saying, the risk premium is going to stop us from doing exactly solar panels yeah. exactly where we should be doing them. How do we overcome these things? Well, I, I think certainly, you know, it's a, you know, um, an organisation like Oxfam is effectively, a, a, you know, an anti-poverty organisation. We, we, our job is to try and eliminate poverty. So we do get people challenging us and saying, "Why are you talking about rich people? Why are you talking about billionaires? You know, what? Who cares about inequality? Let's focus on the job in hand, which is to eliminate poverty." And I think um, what an inequality perspective has brought us and, and has been really useful in, in two different ways right? is to, to really ask exactly those questions um you know uh you have historic inequalities between north and south obviously you have the whole colonial history you have the you know i i, I weep with the you know the, the the every teleconference i'm on with oxfam people from all over the world uh it becomes a running joke there's, there's some angle where the british screwed them over at some point in the last two three hundred years so i mean i think there are huge inequalities north and south and that, and and so you have to ask about not just poverty in developing countries but richness in norway and why they have access to credit markets and why it's so much easier for them but then also at at, at national level i think it's in and this is driven very much by our southern ox fans by our staff all over the world and they say look can we move away from this simplistic frame of the kind of um, you know, virtuous, angelic, developing world and the evil, rich world? You know that, um, and again, an inequality perspective gives you that because in each of these countries, I know this painfully well from living in Kenya and previously in Malawi and South Africa. You, you know, you, there are some very rich and powerful Kenyans who are benefiting enormously from the kind of state failure. Um, just as there are in the US and just as there are here in here, here in the UK. You know, look at the incredible fraud around COVID with Boris Johnson's cronies. So um, it, it, it's 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 not to say in any sense that you know, uh, corruption is some uh, some problem in the global south and, and not in the north. It's a problem everywhere. But it also makes you think, um, uh, it makes you reflect on the realities, as you were saying, for, for those working people in West Virginia or, you know, poor people in the north of England. And, you know, it's, it's, it's this understanding that certainly since the financial crisis, that there are an enormous number of people in these rich countries who are really hurting. And, and uh, really, we need to speak to their 
reality as much as anything. We can't say to them, you should feel really guilty. You live in a rich world and look at these Africans, they're starving. You know, when when we have, I read yesterday in The Guardian, we have almost 4 million people in the UK now regularly using food banks to get uh, free food because they don't have enough uh, money to, to feed themselves. You know, in the sixth richest country in the world. So you've got this, I, I think all of that, um, it doesn't, answer the question of what to do but I think the inequality analysis gives you a much more nuanced perspective about what's going on and and it can see how things are working for for those at the very top I mean I think of the lending to Kenya um, for some of these huge infrastructure projects when they do get the money the reason the risk premium is so high is because it is true that so much of it does go missing you know and um uh, and uh, but then it's also packaged up so that the kind of high risk you know you'll have a have, have a portfolio of debt which will have a bit of Kenyan debt which will be very high risk uh, but it's kind of mitigated by low risk debt uh, in other places so you do have situations where creditors don't really mind if the Kenyan debt goes bad they don't really mind if it's not spent on the thing they'd spend it on because overall it's just about a much more complicated financial product so it's it's really it, the, the 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 morality and the kind of lending to Africa is is it continues to be very dubious um, and and the debt crisis we've got a new report coming out in, in next month looking at the relationship between debt service and health spending for these African nations and you know we've got countries spending four five six times more servicing their debts now than they are on healthcare um, and that's completely unsustainable uh, so I think something has to give in terms of those debt markets. Mm -hmm. In the uh, scheme of things, you, you refer to, how would I say, had we taken the tax uh, on the gains during the pandemic of the wealthiest people and so forth. And these are what you might call hypothetical scenarios. There is a political economy of resistance that we've been exploring a little bit. But there has been a little bit of a movement, I would say. I know uh, scholars Michael Woodford, Paula Cabot Lodge, uh, Scott Solomon, uh, Gabriel Zuckman, Emmanuel Saez, and others are talking about a global wealth tax. And I guess the question that comes to my mind is, as I watch my Commission on Global Economic Transformation talk about the ramifications of globalization, when you read things like the Panama Papers, you can envision that tax. You can see what to do with the proceeds that heals a lot of woundedness and despair in society. But how do we implement it? What, what, what does the system look like that creates the wealth tax that is, how we say, embodied in that research and some of the vision that's in your report? Well, I think, um, I mean, uh, the, the recent report by Piketty and his team in December was was probably the best analysis I've seen uh, of this. And um, I think I think the, the first thing to say is there are multiple ways to tax wealth. And many of the countries in the global south where Oxfam works don't even have the basics in place. They don't even have a property tax. They don't have a capital gains tax. You know, they don't. There is a kind of low hanging fruit um, before we get into the more. Uh, very few with inheritance taxes. Um, so, 
I think there are some basic things that lots of developing countries could could do. And we have seen, I mean, Cambodia a couple of years ago introduced the property tax. We're seeing inheritance taxes. So that that's that's the kind of bread and butter. Um, and also top income taxes. You know, the, 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 the top income rate uh, in, in most developing countries is kind of still around kind of 25, 30 percent. So I think that there's lots of scope in lots of countries for doing that before we get into what I'd call net wealth taxes, which are, you know, um, what Zuckman is calling for, what Elizabeth Warren is calling for, what, what Piketty is called for. But then if we look at them, and this is the, the interesting thing with... Um, uh, what Piketty and Zuckman, because they're such experts on the whole uh, dark arts of tax evasion and tax avoidance, that they see the two things as very much going hand in hand. And one of the interesting things in, in Piketty's recent book was the um, his point was that I mean, you tend to think that data availability is spotty, but getting better as time goes on. But data on wealth, which obviously he monitors closely, is getting worse. And the reason it's getting worse is because you've seen a reduction in the number of wealth taxes. And so the, the, the revenue authorities are not forcing the discovery of people's assets. Um, so there's a kind of symbiotic relationship between making an effort to implement a wealth tax and a, a discovery function where you actually demonstrate just how rich people are. And there's a there's a practicality in that too. But I think in our surveys around the world, you do find, you know, really interesting examples, often historic and, and, and still there because they've never been challenged. But countries like Colombia, Morocco have wealth taxes. You know, it's not it's not implausible. It's difficult, but it's not implausible. And will some money escape? It will. But can you can you get a, a reasonable amount of revenue? Uh, we think that you can. Um, and we don't think that it, we're not advocating um uh, much as it would be wonderful, some form of global wealth tax. You know, these taxes have to be implemented at a national level. Um, but we think um, if you look at the the shift we've seen on corporate tax in the last 10, 15 years, um, and still a long way to go, but to see a global agreement uh, uh, um, on a minimum corporate tax rate and what that means for, for people's inability to... Uh, you know, uh, shift their profits to very, very low tax jurisdictions. I think you could see a similar thing in the next two, three years on individual taxation. You know, there's, there's, we could see that the, 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 the anger and frustration um, uh, around the incredibly low tax rates paid by the, the richest people. You know, two, three percent. Warren Buffett always going on about the fact that he, he pays a higher rate of tax than his cleaner or his secretary. Um, I think that finally will 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 uh, translate into increased taxation on the rich, and I do think that yes, in a world of mobile capital, taxing wealth is difficult, but it is not beyond the wits of of humanity, and and I think we will start to see that happen more and more. I remain it's one of the few areas where I do remain quite optimistic. Cause I think the 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 shift in public opinion on this one is 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 getting uh, significant momentum. It may be a few years yet, but I think, you know, the the the, the kind of U-shaped curve of, of tax rates on the richest, I would hope that it's beginning to bottom out and we'll start to see it going up uh, in future years. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, how would I say, if that U-shape does take place, you deserve some co-authorship because of the illumination, the impetus that you're creating to this awareness. I think it's a, a valuable dimension of, how do I say, arousing 
the value of votes in relation to the value of money. And uh, so I think, uh, how do I say, if you stay on it, my children are going to be better off. And, yeah, and mine too. We talked about you too. <laughs> yeah, my, my nine-year-old, um, he, he makes many a joke around about Jeff Bezos in our house. So billionaires are not popular. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. I think I think we will, but we just need to keep, we're a campaigning organization at heart, Rob, so we, we need to, you, these things do, as you said, it's all about the political economy and unless you can generate, you know, unless the voice of ordinary people is stronger than the voice of plutocrats, progressive things never happen. So we've just got to keep on fighting and keep on hoping that we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for being here today. Thanks for this report. Uh, we'll post it on our website and send people to yours. Uh, I think when they come to your website, they'll find a lot of other how to say accompanying material that fortifies this the how we say the depth of your work and also the power of the mission that you're on so uh how do i say say hello to your uh, your team and thank them and give a nod to winnie who's been part of our commission on global economic transformation and i think it was the person that catalyzed you and i meeting one another and, yeah, uh, amazing woman. One of my absolute heroes. But, yeah. 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 She's vital. Great. Well, let's, uh, how do I say, stay in touch. We'll do another chapter in the not too distant future and uh, keep doing, keep up the good work. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, I think encourage everyone. The one thing you can do with Oxfam is you can join in, you know, and you can start campaigning as well. It's not just about reading the report. So, Please take part, and yeah, it's it's a collective effort. So thank you very much. Thank you. Talk again soon. Bye bye for now. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it, and reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing